from AM and FM stations around the country. Welcome to the Small Business Administration award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, Jim Beach. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. It's Friday the 19th. I hope you're having a great day, had a great week, and excited for a little weekend relaxation. And, of course, as we always do, getting a little bit ahead. We're going to do a little work over the weekend to try to get a jump on the week. Got a fantastic show for you today. Ken Goldstein is with us. He is the man behind thriftbooks.com, 1,200 employees out there competing with Amazon. So you don't get any more competitive a space than that. A amazing model, really, really great thing for you to learn from. So I'm excited for you to meet Ken and hear his story and hear how they built that, that great business uh, competing with the big guys. And then Justin Fallen will be with us. He has a new book out called How to Have Better Teams by Friday. I'm excited to speak with him. His co-author was on the show a couple of weeks ago. We had a great conversation. I expect will be great with Justin as well. I think he has some stories to share with us on better teams, better meetings, better uh, waste or use, I'm sorry, use of my time as we try to build our businesses. So anyway, great stuff today. Appreciate you being with us. Excited for next week as well. We're going to talk a little bit more artificial intelligence. We are going to meet with the founder of Smart Boards, you know, the ubiquitous whiteboards that you can draw on that capture the t uh, information uh, in almost every school in the United States. And a little bit of DEI next week as well. So a bunch of stuff coming up. And as always, we appreciate you being with us. We want to use one minute here to reinforce our thesis so that hopefully you can understand what we're doing, especially for you new listeners. We believe that entrepreneurship should be open to everybody because creativity is easy, a huge percent. 90% of businesses are copies of existing businesses. So why try to have a new idea? Just go find an idea, execute it well. Risk is great for bungee jumpers. Otherwise, we should try to limit our ideas to $5,000. And passion is awesome for the church, synagogue, and mosque. But you don't need to love what you do. You just need to like it better than the job for the man. Anyway, great show. We'll be right back to get started. Radio hopes you will reach out to us if you have any questions or comments, or if you need help with your business at any stage, from concepts to exit. Jim accepts all connections on LinkedIn. He tweets from at Entrepreneur Jim, and he responds to emails at james.beach at att.net. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. We are back, and again, thank you for being with us on a great Friday. And remember, we have a choice to make it great. That is a decision you can make each and every time we get out of bed. 
Very excited to introduce my first guest. Please welcome Ken Goldstein to the show. Wow, he has had a fascinating career. He started off as vice president of entertainment at Broderbond Software. We have all played some of their games and things like that. After that, he got an amazing job at my favorite company in the world, Walt Disney Entertainment Group, helping provide some of the entertainment that they were doing for kids, including the first massive multiplayer game Toon Town. He was also part of movies.com and family.com as part of that Disney umbrella. And just to let you know, Ken, I talk about Disney on the show all the time. After that, he was the CEO of shop.com where they came up with the one cart idea. And today he is the CEO and we will hear the story behind thriftbooks.com, the largest online used bookstore. Ken, can you get me Disney tickets? Welcome to the show. How are you doing? I can't get myself Disney tickets anymore, <laughs> but if I do, I'll definitely ask for an extra pair. Thanks so much for having me on your show. It is my pleasure. I do love the company. There's nothing like taking your kid to a ride that you remember as a kid. And uh, that multi-generational thing is it's hard to come by. You know, the, the state fair isn't there. The the county uh, arts and crafts things are not as popular as they used to be. I love having something that I can do with my kids that I remember. That uh, was very much what Walt set out to do. He said there were very few things that uh, parents and kids could do together. And his vision for the whole uh, Disney park experience was exactly that. Things that you could do uh, multi-generational and seems like it was a decent idea. It kind of lasted a while. Yes. Yes. I, I don't think that a company necessarily needs to get as active in the social world as, and by social, I mean, society as some companies are these days, you know, go do your core mission and, uh, stop is kind of where I am. Uh, what are your thoughts on that as an aside? You know, you know what? I, I am focused on our core mission, which is serving customers and uh, putting great books in their hands and letting them make their own decisions. And that's where we're focused right now. I think that's where we're going to stay focused. All right. So you sort of agree with me in a subtle way. Tell us about thrift books. Uh, I, I believe a book should be held and should make your fingers dirty. Um, what are your thoughts? Tell us about thrift books. I'm going to try not to make your fingers dirty. We, we actually sell used books, but we, they're very, very clean. And we're very careful about that. To I don't make mean sure that clean. We I just out. want the, the <laughs> real paper, you know, the, just the real thing. I, I like a newspaper that does make my hands black, you know? You know, I, I see myself on the airplane each week with my newspaper and I feel a little bit like a dinosaur, but I agree with you. There's nothing quite like turning the page and it's great that there's folks like you out there or we wouldn't have a business. Very much focused on putting books in people's hands. Tell us the entire corporate history. Give us a little entrepreneurial history lesson. Sure. So uh, we're in our 20th year. This year, we're celebrating 20 years of thrift books. And uh, very much the beginning was an entrepreneurial story. Four partners uh, had an idea. And obviously, selling used books is, is not a new idea. But the, the premise was, could we bring technology to that uh, platform and sort out the good books from the bad books? Uh, figure out which ones there was higher demand for, make sure that the ones that weren't being sold were cleanly recycled, and then have a pricing engine that would react dynamically to supply and demand and be able to price on the fly. 
very much uh, at the time, there were there were several players in the field. It was mostly a marketplace business, uh, which you know was Amazon and eBay. Uh, I had a marketplace background, and having been CEO of Shop.com. And uh, we decided, uh, after uh, having established ourselves as a quality seller and uh, being able to meet that customer demand, that we were going to go vertical and build our own brand. And we've really been focused on that probably in the second decade of the company more than the first decade of the company. And uh, while we'll still sell you a book on Amazon if you want it, we'll still sell you a book on eBay if you want it. Uh, we'd rather sell you a book on thriftbooks.com or our app. And that's what we've been focused on, building that brand over the last, uh, over the last decade. Where do the books come from? You know, we we buy books all over the nation. Uh, we work closely with charity partners. We work with Salvation Army. We work with Goodwill. We work with St. Vincent de Paul. We work with libraries, municipal libraries, uh, school libraries. Uh, everywhere there are books that need to be recycled, uh, we uh, send a truck. We fill those trucks up. We bring them to one of our five processing centers, and then technology takes over from there and figures out which ones we want to put on the shelf and which ones we uh, want to cleanly recycle. And what is the the standard? What do you expect to, out of a book that you're going to sell with your brand name on it now? Uh, I could see a wide range of what a used book looks like. Yeah, and we do. We have it's actually one of our, I think, competitive advantages. And There's still a very human element. It's not all technology. We have an awful lot of people that uh, work in these processing centers. But we focus with the brand on accurate grading, and there are multiple gra uh, uh, grades of a book, acceptable, good, very good, like new. And when we put our stamp on it in terms of what that grade is, uh, we will meet that standard with the customer's needs. So if uh, for any reason you don't think we graded it accurately, you, you feel that you didn't get what you paid for, call us up, send us an email, uh, get on chat, and uh, we will make it right. But it's very much about telling you what we're going to sell you and then sending you what you thought you bought. How did the business get funded? It seems like it would have taken a lot of money to start this business. What was the, the funding like? You know, at the very beginning, it was bootstrap. It was, uh, you know, your proverbial startup uh, out, of, out of a living room. Uh, just uh, picking up small lots of books, uh, sorting through them, perfecting the algorithm, uh, and then a little bit of friends and family money to uh, move into the first processing center. I guess in those days, we called it a warehouse. Uh, but in the early days of the business, not a lot of capital in, which I think made the founders very, very successful when private equity came along about a decade after they started. And uh, took a control position. Uh, and uh, I guess that's where I entered the picture coming in as kind of the uh, outside board advisor with some experience, try to take the business to the next level. And that's when capital came in. Obviously, uh, we had uh, both the uh, benefit of debt and equity and really decided to double down on, on all of that automation, uh, all of that processing equipment, all of those algorithms, and then also uh, building out a marketing team and a finance team and all the things you need to do to scale a business. And what is the scale now? And how big is the business now? Well, I can't can't tell you. You're a private company. Uh, exactly what those numbers are, but we are the largest uh, the largest seller in the space, uh, and it equates to uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. And I'll kind of leave it at that. And how many employees? Can you tell us that? Sure. Yeah, we're approaching about 1,200 employees at this point. Wow. Yeah, it's a lot of people. <laughs> it takes a lot of people to get these books out every day. And so 
you're selling hundreds of millions of books a year or something like that? No, we're sorting through hundreds of millions of books a year. I wish we were selling hundreds of millions of books a year. Uh, we sell at a pretty low uh, average selling price, uh, but we're definitely uh, selling tens of millions of books every year. Okay. What is the average price? You know, if you're buying it on thrift books, the average selling price is going to be around $7, but uh, you can find a value on thrift books as low as $2.99. And then they go all the way up on up to collectible books, which can be hundreds and very, very occasionally we'll sell a book in the thousands. You know, I collect, I'm a collector of collections. Can I have several different collections that I'm working on? Uh, I was going to list all of them, but I think that would be embarrassing. One of them, though, is architecture monographs. You know, one architect, all of their works with the blueprints and or not, not blueprints, but uh, so some sort of representation of the floor plan somehow. That's my signature book. The Rizzoli is the major publisher in that. And that book can cost $100 retail. I've had huge success buying them used at $20 sometimes and used means looked through once and put on a shelf. So, right. Um, what I would encourage you to do is go to thriftbooks.com or download our app, take a look, uh, use our search feature, find what you're looking for. And then we have what's called a wish list. If we don't have it in stock, you can put it on your wish list, and as soon as uh, we get it in, uh, we'll notify you. And if you're the only one on the wish list, then you'll buy it quickly. If there are multiple people on the wish list, you need to go fast. Right. So, talk to us about the generic macro e-commerce space. Right. We it's obviously still growing. Is it exploding the way it was? Have we plateaued a little bit? Oh. Uh, what are the important trends that you see? Uh, give us your insights on the space. Sure. Well, I obviously I've spent almost my whole career in technology, so I'm very favorable toward it. I've been, been on the internet since there was a commercial internet. Um, it is continuing to grow. I think we're growing faster than the overall environment because we have this uh, mission-based uh, uh, product where we're keeping product out of landfill and obviously people have a sensitivity toward that wanting to wanting to save a product from uh, you know just being discarded so we're growing pretty fast the overall uh, e-commerce environment is very very good and and generally speaking over the last decade or so we've been kind of clawing back about 1% market share from brick and mortar retail every year there are forecasts that say that will go on for another you know 10 or so years uh, but it's a it's a great time to be in e-commerce if you can get your cost structure right. And that's really the challenge hasn't been the market share shift. It hasn't been consumer demand. I think, again, there are some people like still like going down to the mall. But in terms of convenience and, and getting something directly to you, uh, nothing beats uh, e-commerce. And the question is just, can you operate these companies with all the exploding costs and still drive some money to the bottom line? We can because we're very, very careful about what we do, very disciplined about what we do. But you've certainly seen lots of other stories where people got the top line, but just couldn't get the bottom line. That is a great way to put it. Got the top line, but couldn't get the bottom line. We will tweet that out. That's a, a, a great one. And what is your key to doing that? How do you focus on the bottom line with? It's yeah, it's really about scale. It's about understanding scale. It's about understanding what your fixed costs need to be 
what your variable costs are, how are you setting your gross margin, and then always making sure that your revenues are growing faster than your costs. Anybody can buy a customer. Anybody can go out and spend a lot of money to acquire a transaction. And you're not, unless that's what the direction of your board is, or that's what the direction of your investors are, you're not going to create any profit doing that. And so the question is, are you focused on buying transactions or are you focused on acquiring loyal customers? If you have to pay the marketing costs every single time you want to sell something, you're going to find it very, very hard to make money. If you can acquire loyal customers that come back to you all the time, you're going to find it a lot easier to make money. But scale is really where you have to be to force those revenues up without letting the costs outpace them. How long are you willing to give a startup to achieve scale? You know, I've been on every side of the coin. I've, I've been in a, in a venture back startup. I've been on the board of a venture back startup, worked for a fortune 50 company. It really depends on what the, uh, you know, total available market is. And if you're looking at a very, very large market, uh, and you can be very, very patient. Uh, you can lose money for a long time. I think Amazon was the quintessential example of that. You know, people you go back to the dot-com crash and, oh my goodness, is, is able to figure this thing out. And they just kept investing and investing and investing. Believed in, in the mission and believed that a big brand would emerge there were patient. And certainly that patience has been rewarded. So it's a case-by-case thing. But when you look at what is that, Tam? What is that that total opportunity that's available to you? That's extra ex- expectation on how much investment you're willing to uh, to take and, and how much your investors are willing to be patient to see you uh, put that money to work. Are you worried about the next generations not reading? You know, I'm not. I'm really, really encouraged. People ask me that, and at least if people are reading, uh, they're, they're reading, uh, you know, I'm very, very encouraged by that. Not, not just by our sales, but by the comments we see by the fact that, that, uh, market share is growing in print, uh, electronic books have stabilized, but people are still using them. They check them out of the library. Um, I'm, I'm pretty encouraged that we have a reading generation. They certainly like to do other things like play games and watch TikTok videos, but, uh, reading has been around for uh, as long as we've been around. And I think it'll be around for an awful long time. What about the mall? Ah, uh, boy, I'll tell you, I wouldn't be investing in mall real estate right now, but that's just me. I mean, there are the A-level malls, the B-level malls, and the C-level malls. The parking lots are full. Uh, the B-level malls, you can always get a space going on there. Uh, you know, certainly people like to go to stores. I'd like to see the small towns come back. I like to see the downtowns come back. Uh, you know, you see, we had small business Saturday right after Thanksgiving. And I saw a lot of people in our small shops in our town. So hopefully that'll come back, but, uh, I think malls are going to be challenging. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Even with the creative uses that they're coming up with, I still don't, don't get it. So, well, this is a generation that's being brought up on convenience. And, and you know, if you've been brought up with, a with, a you know, uh, a sophisticated mobile phone you see people shopping with one hand you watch their fingers moving i mean it's amazing how fast people can can get a product into a cart price compare it uh you know arrange for delivery if they're not going to be home have it sent to a store where they can pick it up 
There's just a lot there in terms of convenience. And this is a generation that's focused on convenience. Again, uh, there's certainly a social aspect to going down and seeing your friends, uh, you know, at the mall and, and hanging out and having a cup of coffee. But if you've got a lot to do, you're a busy person, you really can't beat the e-commerce experience. What kind of leader are you, Ken? How do you manage? Uh, how do you want to be thought of as a manager? Oh, that's, that, that is a great question. Um, you know, I wrote a book on this uh, called uh, Endless Encores, and I sort of have three points to what I think about when I think about uh, management. I think about people. I think about problems in that order. I'm a very people-centric manager. I revere talent. People that want to sacrifice, want to relearn their jobs all the time. I want to have a product that people actually want, that there's something that you can build a moat, build a competitive advantage, have something that you can offer that other people can't offer. And then third, I want to have a business model. I want to have a business model that's sensible, that's reasonable, not that someday we might make money, but that if we do all of these things we right, we'll, we will make money. And then, as I said, move that into a, a form of scale where, where we can keep those costs low and keep those revenues growing. But nothing is more important than talent. Talent is where all all things happen. It's where all decisions happen. Uh, it's where all judgment happens. It's where collaboration and teamwork happen. They've got to be focused on a great product, and then they've got to have a sensible sensible business model to make it all come together. And sort of the same thing about entrepreneurship. What are your personal philosophies on entrepreneurship? Uh, what are the entrepreneurship buzzwords that bother you? Um, that kind of thing. What are your thoughts on entrepreneurship in particular? I love, I love entrepreneurs. Like I said, I've sat on boards. I've encouraged, I've made those, those seed investments. Um, I think you have to have a lot of patience. I think you have to be willing to fail. Um, I think that you have to know the difference between a great idea and a mediocre idea. And you have to know the difference between a great team and a mediocre team. If I have a choice between a great team and a great idea, I'll take the great team because the great team will figure out how to make an ordinary idea a great idea. But sorting those things out, I think, is a, is a big part of what drives the economy uh, uh, forward. What bothers me uh, are unfinished products. I think this idea of, of a minimum viable product that you're going to just kind of dump on your customers and let them suffer with. I know that it's worked for an awful lot of entrepreneurs. I know that it's a buzzword that people care about. But going back to that Disney experience, um, even even Broderbund, when we were doing games like Carmen San Diego and Mist, it was all about the details. It was about getting it right, not being at 90%, not being at 95%, being at 100% or as close to 100% as you can get. And then if you can't get to 100%, come back and do it again, get to 99.9%, 99.99%. But just just throwing a product out there and seeing if it'll stick that that troubles me that's not the kind of entrepreneurship that uh that that I champion did Shapik get what he deserved who should replace Bob Iger now would you, would you I, I can't <laughs> I had my decade at uh, at, a, at a fortune 50 company and uh, I wanted to go back and do something uh, small and creative and entrepreneurial you know, Bob Iger is a friend. I worked for him uh, uh, when Michael Eisner was there. He recruited me to Disney. They were great people. They are great people. Bob was a friend when I was there. We worked very closely together, launching home video and DVD. All great folks. It's a tough business running a company at size at scale is a very, very tough enterprise. And uh, since I don't think my phone's going to ring uh, at this point, uh, I probably don't have to answer the question. How often would you speak 
see email phone someone like the ceo uh eisner or Iger. you were you know not the uh not like the c level the cfo the cmo you were you know level below that so how often did you actually talk to the boss Oh, I talked to Michael uh, every couple of days. I mean, we remember we were trying to get that company onto the internet. That was analog days, uh, moving, moving, uh, all of the, uh, individual, we moved about 70 business units, uh, of the Disney company from analog to digital. And Michael was very, very keen on that as was Bob. And so I had a lot of support and, um, we had a lot of work to do, but, uh, just, just those were very, very exciting and interesting, scary times. Uh, and I think we made some good decisions at the time and let the company get to where it is today with, uh, you know, a wonderful, wonderful offering like Disney plus it doesn't just unlike Disney plus doesn't come out, you know, the, when you just sort of sit down and say, let's go do Disney plus there were, there were many, many years and many, many people's hard work to build that platform, but, um, great bosses and great colleagues and nothing but good feelings about those, those times. Is it harder to launch a career in fiction or nonfiction? Oh goodness! Now you're asking the hard questions. Launch launch an author career. I don't know that anybody can launch an author career in a market this fragmented. I don't know how Stephen King would do it today. Uh, I mean, clearly there are more books that come out in nonfiction than in fiction. But the big big hits, uh, like uh, what you're seeing with Rebecca Yaros and those sorts of things, those are coming out in fiction. So. I think you have to write what you're true to and whatever you're interested in. You can't do it just, you know, for the commercial opportunity. Uh, but launching a career as an author today, I think it's a great avocation. I think it's really, really tough to just go after that and say you're a full-time author. Yes, I agree. The fragmentation is unbelievable. It's unbelievable how many books are hitting, uh, how many are published every day, all of it. It is. And, you know, but it's also very, you know, you talk about letting everybody have a voice and be democratic. I mean, you know, certainly there's some stuff out there in self-publishing that, you know, isn't isn't great. Uh, but there also are a lot of places where people are launching careers in self-publishing. And uh, it's a good place for publishers to see, you know, what kind of a voice people have. So, yeah. It's uh, it's a two-edged sword because, uh, as you said, in the nonfiction, you can no, nobody is uh, there's no publisher or editor going to check your facts. You can say what you want to go say, uh, and that that doesn't always lead to the best books. But it certainly let, lets people express opinions. And again, when we talk about subjects like accessibility and hearing multiple voices and having those those uh, discussions, the marketplace of ideas, as John Stuart Mill talked about. I don't think there's been any better time. It's just sorting through that noise uh, is very, very hard for the reader, but it's also from a writer's standpoint, very, very difficult to break out. Um, that doesn't mean there aren't breakouts. Every year there are breakouts. Uh, the good ones, you know, uh, rights get sold. They become TV series now. So lots and lots of content out there. But in terms of uh, trying to attack it as a, as a full-time profession, uh, I think you got to be very good, but you also got to be very lucky. Ken Goldstein, how do we find out more about you, follow you online? Most importantly, how do I go and buy a used book? Well, I would like you to go to thriftbooks.com, and uh, you can see if, uh, if you don't have an account, you can set one up there. You can also go to the Apple Store or the Android Store, download our app. Uh, we love people on the app. Sign up for our mailing list, get our newsletters, get our offers, uh, and uh, see if we meet your expectations as a customer. That's uh, that's a big part of, uh, of of what we want. We want you in the family, and we want you to be a customer for many, many years to come.
Fantastic. Ken, thank you so much for being with us. Great, great story. And uh, I hope you'll come back again. Jim, thanks so much. And keep doing what you're doing. We got to keep feeding those entrepreneurs because that's where the big ideas come from. You're encouraging people to do it. It's a great thing. It's a bold thing. And without that, you know, we're not going to have another hundred years of innovation, but I have a sense there's a lot of people out there with a lot of creativity and good ideas in their heart. They're going to put those teams and financing together. They're going to change the world. I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much, Ken. Thank you, Jim. And we will be right back. Well, that's a, that's, a, that's a wonderful question, actually, Jim. Oh, my gosh. I love the opportunity to do this. Thank you, Jim. Wow, that's, that's, a, that's a great one. You know, that is a phenomenal question. That's a great question, and, and I don't have a great answer. It, that's a great question. Oh, that is such a loaded question. And that's actually a really good question. School for Startups Radio. We are back in again. Thank you so very much for being with us today. I'm very excited to welcome my next guest to the show. Please welcome Justin Fallen. He is co-author of Be a Better Team by Friday, a playbook for high-performance business leaders. His co-author, David Greenspan, was on the show a week or so ago. Maybe you remember. He is, Justin is also the CEO and co-founder of Blue Case, which is the name of their leadership development and coaching firm. Justin, welcome. How are you doing today? Thank you. I am doing great. Feeling really good right now. I'm in Virginia. Normally I live in Texas, but got up here to see my family and uh, weather's great. Having a good time. Well, congratulations on the book and always fun to see the family. Let's talk a little bit about the book, Be a Better Team by Friday. How? What's what, what, what can we do so fast? How can we make changes so quickly? Well, we named it Be a Better Team by Friday because if you apply any of the seven practices in our book, you will be significantly better. I think a lot of the problems that teams face are not that they don't have skilled people on the team, but that working together can be very difficult, especially when you put on a team, maybe you don't have a lot of background with each other, and you're just trying to figure out how to get things done. So having some very core leadership practices that everyone on the team applies will get you there really fast. And uh, each of the practices standing alone will get you there. But if you're practicing every practice, especially over time, not only do you get better by Friday, but you'll become a better team that accomplishes goals year after year. How many people should be on a team? Well, you know, that's a good question. I, I think that sometimes a team could be two or three people. And sometimes a team is uh, 20, 25 reports working for one manager. I think that you want to have the right amount of people that where communication doesn't get too siloed or distributed. So where there can be direct communication among the people working on the team. I, I usually see teams from four to 10 people are a strong fit. And then when you start to get it where communications just get too dispersed, things can start to fall apart. But a manager with 20, 30 reports can do a good job, but it's, it's going to be extra work making sure that team's still cohesive. All right. And how often does the team need to meet with everyone in it? 
Well, I would say one of the more important questions is how often does a manager need to meet with their reports directly? Uh, because um, you can have a team meeting and people will not have a direct interaction with their manager. So I like to recommend that a manager is meeting and doing a listening tour with their direct reports at least once a quarter, if not once every six months where they, as the manager, are receiving feedback about how they're doing as a leader. And that sometimes flips the script for a lot of people. It's, sometimes it's rare for anybody to have a manager ask them for feedback about how they're doing as a leader. But that's what really builds the rapport one-on-one. -on -one. And then as a team, when people are experiencing the manager doing that, then they're meeting with each other getting feedback from each other. And then I would say, you know, a team meeting for our executive team, we meet once a week and that's, that's good. Some teams don't need to meet once a week, but uh, having a regular cadence and rhythm for regular meetings uh, is definitely important. Although having a one-on-one -on -one relationship continue to be, be built throughout the year is also crucial. All right. And when we have meetings, say there's 10, 15 people in the room. Do you believe in any of these meeting philosophies like the stand-up meeting or the pizza meeting or any of these things, any of these trendy <laughs> yeah. things that you hear about? I heard of a fondue meeting and I was like, okay, that's just too fun for me. I'm not even going to play that game. Uh, I, I, I have yet to be to have gone to a fondue meeting, uh, but I like the idea of it. Um, I, I think that one of the things that is is really important is that there are just too many meetings and that a lot of meetings really are not doing what you're intending to do. So whether you're having one meeting a quarter or having one meeting a week, I think what's more important than doing some new trendy ideas is just having the basic building blocks of what makes a great meeting. And that is something that is in our book and some building blocks of what would would help with that but some really basics are do you have an agenda for the meeting do you have a fundamental why for the meeting meaning is there a clear stated purpose for the meeting are the people who are in the meeting clear why they're there and when i walk into a room and i'm standing in front of 60 people who are managing others inside of a company. And I ask how many of you start your meetings with a clear fundamental why agenda and, and a stated result. A lot of times people are looking around the room and kind of acknowledging maybe they're not doing that. And so one of the number one complaints in every organization we work in, one of the, the biggest challenges is too many meetings. Everyone says that. Everyone says too many meetings and meetings are a waste of time. And I think that's true when meetings are not good. But when you put in the discipline of the key building blocks to having great meetings, including asking for feedback about how the meeting went, you start to see something different happen. And I think meetings can be great because I see that happen. And a lot of people scratch their head when they hear the concept of a great meeting. Um, they don't think that you can have a great meeting. But the kind of meetings that I'm interested in and that I see happen when we work with companies is it's like watching a professional sports team practice. There's a lot of energy. There's a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of excitement. People get into a flow state. There's this sort of sense of creativity and conversation where people are listening to each other. And 
not a lot of argument, but there's healthy debate and decisions get made and results are produced because people get into action as a result of the meeting. And when you build that kind of consistent meeting hygiene, you're going to see a very different kind of meeting. And then there's not too many meetings. It becomes a highlight of people's work because you're working with people who you really love to work with. What is that meeting talking about? Justin, do I have a meeting to disseminate information, for example? We're having a conference six months from now. We need to talk about it, but here's the information. Was that meeting worth having? What meeting sounds exciting and sexy like what you were talking about in relation to my conference? Deciding whether to have the conference or not and planning the theme six months ago? Help me. Okay, so if we're talking about planning a conference, I think... uh, do I have a meeting to disseminate information? Can an email uh, do that? If an email can suffice, send it via email. The point is not to have meetings just for the sake of having meetings. We kind of want to be able to get rid of that practice altogether. Uh, if a meeting doesn't need to happen, if there's not a clear fundamental why, so fundamental why meaning the underlying intention or purpose of the meeting, if that's not clear, if there's not a result that's going to be produced, if it's not every single person at this meeting is going to leave with clear actions and to-dos to make that conference happen, we shouldn't be having that meeting. And yes, a, a clear communication, an email that, that, removes the email uh, that removes the meeting from the calendar, that's a really smart thing to do. Having the email communication eliminate 20% of meetings, 30% of meetings, that's a smart thing to do. Uh, you want to make sure that your meetings are set up where everyone in the meeting is going to have a clear input into the decision-making track and is likely going to leave with clear actions as defined by who does what by when, written out, and that is a communication that goes out afterwards. A lot of times there are people who were not at the meeting but need that information. So one email following a meeting like this is a way to save those people's time as well. Let's talk a little bit about the book, Justin, congratulations. It's five-star rated on that Amazon website. Maybe you've heard of it. We went through a little bit with it, uh, with David, your co-author, but give us a taste of the book. What are some of the principles that can actually make a difference between now and Friday? Well, the book is comprised of seven key practices that every team should be applying. And a lot of times they're common sense, but also will have you thinking a little differently about how you might be leading your team. So seven practices are choose your mindset, get really with each other to build trust, know the fundamental why, give feedback like a coach, adapt your work styles, get focused and get it done. And so there's a little bit of high performance psychology embedded into this there's a little bit of coaching and sports psychology embedded into this how do you get high performance out of your team adapting your work styles is is a lot about how to work with different kinds of people which is a big challenge for a lot of people and then there's eliminating the extra stuff and working towards achieving your stated plan and having clear accountability who does what by when still there 
I'm sorry, I had oh. you on mute so you wouldn't hear okay. my noises. Uh, <laughs> would you go through some of them in depth? In particular, I'd like to hear more about giving feedback like a coach. Uh, yeah, sure. What a, like a like a coach? That's an interesting thing. Like Bear Bryant, or like uh, what's the guy from Indiana that uh, passed away recently? Bobby Knight. Bobby Knight. Do I get to throw? <laughs> All I really want to know, Justin, is do I get to throw a chair or not? Do I want to throw to- a chair. <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah, give feedback like a coach who is not Bobby Knight. I'll tell you a story that that got me into this work in the first place. I was just graduated from college. I went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and uh, I think anyone who follows basketball knows basketball is like religion in North Carolina. And so, I went to school at UNC the very worst year in the school's history. They had the losingest team in the history of the school. And so I graduated that year and had missed out on the opportunity to be a part of this championship feeling that everybody who'd been legacies there talked about. But I stuck around Chapel Hill for a year and I was working as a server in the banquet hall at UNC at the alumni center and was serving the team on the very first night before the very first game of the season under a brand new coach by the name of Roy Williams, who had just come over from the University of Kansas. And I was in the room, standing in the back of the room and listening to him talk to each of his players. And the way that he was talking to them had me so inspired. I thought I could win a national championship. There's just something about how he talked to them that really, really lit even me up. And he took that same group of guys that had been the losingest team in the school's history, and he won a national championship with them. And to me, that really inspired me to look at what was that? What is it that has some people be able to motivate that kind of performance from people who are great, but really got them to the next level? And so I really devoted my career to learning about that. And one of the keys to giving feedback like a coach comes from that, just watching the sports coaches in their practices. If you, if you watch them, they're not saying, stop it, stop dribbling like that, stop doing that. They're saying, good job, more like that. There's a lot of acknowledgement and appreciation of what's going well, because as sports psychology has found, when you're focusing on what's working, when you're focusing on doing what to do more of, it keeps players in what's called a flow state or in the zone. And uh, so that's what you'll see a lot of times on the court or on the field, a lot of encouragement. And then they'll often focus on just finding one thing for say a pitcher on a mound to focus on, to get better instead of berating them with many criticisms, they'll focus on, okay, just focus on stepping your foot right in front of the, uh, the mound like this. It'll be one very specific technique. And so we apply that in our teamwork and we are encouraging managers, encouraging anyone giving feedback to each other, focus on what's working, focus a lot on what's working because the more that you focus on what's working, the more that you're going to be getting what works. Hey, really love the outline of the presentation, really love how each of the slides contains the exact right amount of information. So now the next time somebody's working on that presentation, they're going to know exactly what to do. 
Whereas a lot of times what you see in uh, work environments doesn't look like that. It doesn't look like focusing on what's working. It doesn't focus on just suggesting specific solutions. It looks more like, I don't really like it. I don't know. I don't know what you should do, but it's not quite right. Fix the presentation. Um, or there'll be a list of things that are wrong with the presentation with a lot of, a lot of, without a lot of suggestions for what to do better. So like a coach, you want to be giving feedback in a way that actually leads to improvement. Otherwise, you're just criticizing. And then how do you take care of the bad things, though? Absolutely. First of all, how do you, yeah. So when they actually do something wrong, how do you take care of that? Yeah, definitely. And so that's in our book. That's one of the the key practices in that feedback section is how to give difficult, critical feedback. And first of all, this shouldn't be the first time somebody's getting feedback from you. We want to create an environment where feedback is a daily event. And what we call feedback first begins with 80% of your feedback just being acknowledging what's going well, focusing on things you want to see more of. The more that you do that, you will start to see it on your team. And then when things aren't quite right, to create a very clear, specific um, approach to giving the difficult feedback in a way that leads to asking the participant, what do they see as some, some solutions to move forward when something's not working? So that they're having an input and having some of their own creative process and figuring out a solution to moving things forward. And it's not, it's not like there aren't some conversations that are extremely difficult or something's not working out. Totally is a, is a part of work. But what often happens with the managers we work with is they haven't been giving a lot of the foundational feedback. It just goes to once things have gone completely awry, they're going and they're given criticism. So without a solid feedback practice, it becomes very demotivating and demoralizing. You know, the school systems are trying to do this now. My kids have a system at school called PBIS, and I don't know what it stands for, but it's uh, they get points. And if they get a certain number of points, they get invited to a party and they get points for doing something good. So if they hold the door open, the teacher may give them a point or something. And they're trying to do that instead of, you know, disciplining the bad situation. And it works for a lot of kids. I find it works for the good kids, but not for the bad kids. Uh, and the bad employees be saved just with praise? Well, I do want to be clear. We're not just doing a praise-based system in, in this. It's, it's really focusing specifically on what is working as a baseline. So, um, you know, there's one school of thought that might be it's just about making people feel good. The morale is high. But on a team that is at high performance, which is the kind of teams we build, they're having what's called level 10 conversations. So if you think about uh, one to 10, one being sort of weak, kind of, you know, everyone's being nice to each other. They're not saying the real stuff. And 10, meaning 
having complete, open, authentic, honest conversations about both what's working and what's in the way, you build the muscle, the rigor of having that disciplined conversation where we are having the real conversation. We are being authentic with each other. Ideally, we're doing that so much that it's not, it's not debilitating to somebody when suddenly they get a piece of feedback and it, and it just doesn't, doesn't work for them. And it shocks them that, that this becomes a norm of having open trust building conversations on such a regular basis that you can have these difficult conversations without it, you know, just, just needing to make somebody feel good. Um, and I think there's also a truth to the fact that on a lot of teams, sometimes it doesn't work to have somebody on the team and, um, that person isn't up for open and authentic and honest conversations. And, and those difficult decisions are hard to face. And, and those are, those are team specific, you know, they want to have people who are willing to be inside of their culture, who can, who can perform at this level, who can have these kinds of conversations, who are willing to give and receive feedback on a daily basis and not necessarily take things personally. And when we see the highest performing teams, they all describe it that way, that they know each other has their backs, that they do hear the difficult stuff, but they see it as part of their ongoing growth because they trust their teammates are developing them and they're developing each other. It's about creating a feedback culture, not just making people feel good. Although I love that the school is doing that. That's, I'm sure it'll help some of those kids a lot. <laughs> uh, you know, the, 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 as I said, the good kids thrive because they love the praise. And so they work hard to get more. Let's move on. We have time to talk about one more part of the book. Adapt your work style, please. Talk about that section. Yeah, well, you know, I think I got, I'll give you a story. At one time I was working with a team and the CEO and the uh, HR executive were having a real tough time uh, because I was coaching both of them. And, and she was telling me, you know, Justin, it's like I go in there and I'm completely prepared and I start talking and then I lose his attention. He just doesn't seem to want to hear what I have to say. And meanwhile, the CEO has said, Justin, can you just teach her how to communicate with me differently? And this is a common problem where people who are really talented on the same team, they're often not speaking the same language. They kind of have a different preference to how to work and what's important to them. So we applied the Tilt 365 profile. That's, that's what we think is one of the most useful personality assessments uh, that I've ever seen because it is agile and there's, it's very simple to see and that there are four different strengths that are represented in their model. So it's very simple. There's four different kinds of people, kinds of strengths that we see exhibited on teams. All four are important. There's a connection style, and these people are very, very open to people and ideas and love connecting people. There's impact people. They move fast, and they want three bullet points on a slide, and that's all they care about. They care about why and what the results are. There's structure people who are very organized. They're the masterminds. They're like the architects of the team. They, they figure out the processes. And then there's clarity-oriented people who are very detail-oriented. They do research and they have lots of information that is important and they, they move slower, but they're very, they make really sound decisions based on data. And so in this story, 
what was happening was we had an HR director who was very clarity oriented. And she had, a lot, she had all the details on her slide deck. And a CEO who was very impact oriented, very concerned with how, why we're doing something and the minimum amount of information I need to make the decision. So when she would come in with all those slides, it was an overwhelm. He couldn't he couldn't process that in much information. And for her, she felt like he wasn't considering the important details. So I worked with both of them. And what, what she started to do was make three bullet point slides. And, uh, and then I had him understand that there's more thinking behind this that he needed to be aware of. So she walks in the first day after we talk about this, she's got three slides with three bullet points each. He goes through them, says, I love it. I love what you got here makes a decision and then she's able to leave with him the information that she thinks is supplemental and important but still important so when you what started to happen was as they learned their different work styles they created a much more effective team camaraderie and five six years later they're still working together and that company is performing far beyond where they've ever been they were basically exponential curve over the last six years Fantastic story. Great one, Justin. We're about out of time. How do we find out more? Follow you online, get in touch, learn about the business, all of that, please. Well, I am on LinkedIn, regularly posting, regularly sharing my thoughts. Justin Fallen, F-O-L-L-I-N. We have an assessment for anybody who's interested. It's a free assessment on the site betterteambook.com encourage anybody who's working on a team or especially running a company to go take take that for free and then our website is called bluecase.com and of course our book be a better team by friday is available on amazon and all book forms including audiobook hardback paperback and all over the internet Fantastic. Great stuff. Justin, thank you so very much and would love to have you back. Great stuff. Thanks hey, yeah. Thank you, Jim. We're out of time, but you know what we do? That's right. We come back. Be safe, everyone. Take care. Go make a million dollars. We'll talk to you again soon. Bye now. <laughs>